Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And for the next hour, we're going to do a national town hall meeting with the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Congressman Ro Khanna. He represents Silicon Valley in California in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. You can tweet him at rep, as in representative, rep Ro Khanna. And uh, Congressman, welcome back to the program. What's Before we pick up calls here, what's on your mind this week? What do you see as the top line news stories and the things that we need to be paying attention to are the areas where we need to be focusing our activism? Well, Tom, as you know, on Friday, the House passed the HEROES Act. The most urgent part of that is the trillion dollars uh, to cities and states. About 14 percent or so of people are employed by cities and states, It's about 83 uh, percent private, but 14 uh, percent in cities and states. And a lot of those uh, folks will face layoffs if we don't get then money passed. And that's going to be in the Senate. So we need to push on that. Of course, progressives like me, we voted for the HEROES Act, but some of us voted reluctantly and had voted against the rule to push for the vote because it was missing any expansion of Medicare and Medicaid. It was missing a paycheck guarantee for employees. So we still have work to do to get some of our progressive priorities through even the House. Right. It seemed to me like, and I noticed this, in fact, Congressman Pocan was on talking about the deficiencies in this legislation. But it seemed to me that the strategy here is we've got to get help to states and cities. There's some stuff that's absolutely necessary. We will keep out of this bill the stuff that might cause actual philosophical arguments from Republicans, like expanding Medicare or Medicaid, and leave that as a battle for another time. We're going to make this bill so basically friendly, not necessarily to Republican politicians, but to Republican voters, that there will be pressure on Mitch McConnell to pick this up in the Senate and run with it, which will give the Democrats a victory and will further inform the American people who's on their side and who's not. Am I reading too much into that, you know, or thinking that Nancy well, Pelosi here is playing right. three-dimensional chess when it's really checkers? And I think they would agree with you on that. I would just say that if the bill was just cities and states and the trillion dollars, you'd be absolutely right. But there was $2 trillion more of things uh, like the hazard pay for workers, which, again, is very popular. But the one place where I think the progressives took issue is the massive expansion of COBRA, which McConnell is oh, not yeah. going to go for even that. And 
you know, if you're going to do subsidies, even the ACA, subsidizing the gold plans on the ACA is 25% cheaper, and certainly Medicare or Medicaid expansion would be more popular. But by and large, I think you're right. I mean, what they wanted to do is to figure out things that would not be very controversial and which would make it hard for McConnell to say no to. Right. Yeah. And we'll see how this plays out. Okay. Well, let's pick up some phone calls here. Congressman Khanna is with us. Robbie in Portland, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Yeah, good morning. I wanted to talk about the Trace Act that Representative Rakana signed and said he didn't remember last week when I tried asking about it. More specifically, it's about the $100 billion grant that gives immunity to corporations to come to our places for testing. Some people are saying it's an, un- uh, an unconstitutional overreach. I'm wondering how you don't remember signing a $100 billion grant called H.R. 666 and then laugh at me and call me a conspiracy theorist. And what I'm bringing up is something that is an overreach, which I think you provided a part into. I think it was actually four sixes, Congressman. All right, Robbie, I, this is not something that's part of the stimulus that's passed. I guess, is he talking about my co- co-sponsorship on one of these bills? I guess I I'm, don't know. I you know, I, know. I, I'm happy I'm if you write to our office. I'm happy to, to get you an answer. I know this has not been part of any of the stimulus bills or anything we've voted on in the last since the COVID crisis. And I certainly oppose any grant of immunity to businesses without extraordinary protections for workers and extraordinary protections and safety. So I've been very public about that. David in Spotswood, New Jersey, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hey, um, Congressman, I know this is a Hail Mary pass, but if you could please sneak into the House bill, some sort of fairness doctrine for economic education. I mean, I'm out in the real world and I'm hearing all sorts of crazy ideas that that the U.S. is going to have hyperinflation, even though we're the reserve currency. Something. There's no words. You know, what what you're doing in Congress is even your plan with Timothy Ryan. It's a um, it's a Keynesian stimulus. You know, Keynesian should be Keynesian stimulus should be mentioned for the public and the public should be educated about it. Keynes is also against global production. He said all production should be postponed if possible. Hyman Minsky, who was the predecessor to Stephanie Kelton, he told President Lyndon Johnson that his war in poverty wouldn't work, that instead of having a minimum wage, he should have a guaranteed wage, which would set a floor wage. And a lot of his theories have been proven right. And then we could have the the right-wing belter ideas, you know, that the market has to weed out and the tough have to raise... David, let's let the congressman respond to your comments here uh, rather than give a speech. Congressman? David, I think you're very thoughtful points. I mean, let's just be very clear. I mean, not only are we the reserve currency, but we have a very, very low inflation environment and a low interest rate environment. Now, if we did not spend and try to help consumer demand, which is what we would do if we gave every American a check, and help small businesses, what you would have is dramatic increase in unemployment. And as Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, has said, hurting the productive capacity of the United States. What does that mean? That means we'd actually probably increase the deficits because of a shrinking of our GDP and of tax revenue. And so the point is that we can argue later on whether we should pay down the debt after we're through the crisis, and that can be a philosophical debate. But even conservative economists would say in low interest rate environments, it's worth making those investments to prevent massive unemployment. Sandra in Culver City, California, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Okay, I just have something quick because I agree with you. I'm extremely worried that Trump will 
win this election. And I have seen such amazing things over the Internet and through email that it's scary. And I'm wondering when the progressives are going to maybe to remember or to think about the philosophy not of Biden not being as important as getting Trump out before he destroys this country entirely. Sandra, I, I uh, share your concerns that this is going to be a tough election. I, I think it's a mistake to underestimate Trump, but I hope that people will see that his policies are actually not what's going to be rebuilding the economy of this country, and that he's not following science in terms of keeping us safe. And this pandemic, unfortunately, is going to be with us until we have a vaccine. And so my view is that our party needs to have a clear, bold economic vision, and we need to have a bold vision for public health and continue to make that case of why Trump has been wrong on both accounts. Yeah, it's fascinating to see how tenacious these Trumpsters are, you know, showing up in large crowds and groups and things because they're watching Fox News. I mean, the right wing media echo chamber has a huge influence here now congressman it really does and you know that's one of the challenges of deliberative democracy as you know it counts on an independent media and we don't have that yeah by and large congressman rokana is uh, doing a national town hall meeting here with you and me for this hour on the tom hartman program he represents california's 17th district he is the vice chair of the congressional progressive caucus we'll be back in just a moment This is the Tom Hartman Program. With more of your calls for Congressman Ro Khanna. His website, Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov. So we've got a new video up over at TomHartman.com, and this is about just a totally bizarre story about these three guys with no VA experience, uh, not even veterans, who are all big shots down at Mar-a-Lago, that Donald Trump has put in charge of the Veterans Administration functionally. And their association, one of them is the head of Marvel Entertainment, their association with Johnson & Johnson and the New York Stock Exchange, and Johnson & Johnson, the big drug company, taking this very, very cheap chemical ketamine tweaking the molecule a little bit and rolling it out as a new anti-suicide drug, Spravato, that in clinical trials caused six people to die, three of them by suicide, and none of the people taking the placebo to die. And now Trump is telling the VA, you have to buy this highly inflated price drug from Johnson & Johnson, and the Democrats want to know what's up with the VA crowd guys. Check it out. It's at TomHartman.com. Mike in Columbus, New Mexico. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Thank you. I have a question for the Congressman. I live on the border of old Mexico. Trump's ridiculous wall runs behind my backyard. And his policies on Mexico are devastating to us here. An example of this, and maybe you could answer this question, President Trump promised to compensate Mexico for not importing oil into the United States. How did he plan on doing that? That's a lot of money. Is he just going to extend his federal credit card and cover that? And the effect that it's had on this border is very devastating already because it is 
affected the exchange rate of the peso to the dollar. Before he announced this, the peso was trading at 18 to 1. Okay? It went up to 28 to 1. And then he announced this bailout to Mexico, and it dropped down to 25 to 1. Now, Mexico is basically an oil company because Mexico owns the oil, and the government gets all the revenues from the oil production in Mexico. Is this a bailout of Mexico? Thank you. Interesting question, Mike. Well, I, I appreciate the question. I mean, I think that the first point is that we ought not to be having a border wall with Mexico and that there ought to be a understanding that having uh, the Mexican economy be uh, stronger is in the United States' interest, both because it will actually be the one reason that you don't have as much immigration if you improve the economic prospects in Mexico and in Central America. And it also, to the extent that you view China as competition, uh, it's in our interest to have a strong regional economy. Now, it ought to be done with collective bargaining, and it ought to be done not the way NAFTA was done that sold out workers in this country. In terms of the oil itself, I mean, I don't think that our focus on the relationship should be based on uh, trade on oil. I think our focus should be on other aspects of developing clean energy and, and an economy that's rooted on clean technology. What is our policy, the U.S. policy with regard to oil? Are, are, we're still providing military service to, to keep the shipping lanes clear. We're still importing oil, even though we're supposedly self-independent. We changed the law so that we can, our oil companies can now export oil. Do you see any other changes? I mean, look, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, in the Strait of Hormuz, we're the ones that are defending the free flow of oil, and it's the Chinese and the Indians are actually benefiting. I mean, that's the irony of our, a lot of our military uh, is there to keep full of oil. But th- this administration has just had a carte blanche, basically, the, the energy companies. I mean, they have no sense of what incentives we ought to be doing to have transition to renewable energy. Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Moving Forward by Corinne Jean-Pierre. This is from the introduction, Coming to America. I carry something special in my wallet. My cousin, Jean-Pierre, gave it to me before my first day working for President Barack Obama in the White House. Remember this, he asked, as he handed me an old snapshot, the corners creased, the colors washed out. I gasped. I had forgotten the trip our extended family, me and my cousins, had taken to Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1982, just before I turned eight. There we were, seated on the base of the railing in front of the south lawn of the White House, with the Truman balcony in the far background. Jeannot gave me the photo to remind me of the pride my family takes in my success, of all of the people in the Haitian-American community I carry on my shoulders. I kept that photo with me from then on. Every day when I got money out of that wallet for a cup of tea or a bagel at the cafeteria in the Eisenhower Executive Office building in Washington, D.C., I couldn't help but glance at the image of that timid, skinny young girl sandwiched between my much older cousins. Back then, I was so shy that the nuns who taught kindergarten at my Catholic school called my mother in to say that they were worried about me. She doesn't play with other children, they said. She just keeps to herself. Over the years, I worked hard to overcome that. You've made us all proud, Jeanette told me code for how unlikely it was, inconceivable really, that anyone from our family could get to the White House. 
My Haitian-American father and mother, a New York City taxi driver and a home health care aide, didn't closely follow American politics. They were more likely to discuss the viciously oppressive dictator dynasty of Francois Papadoc Duvalier and his son Jean-Claude Babydoc Duvalier, who ruled Haiti from 1957 to 1986, than any American president. Like many immigrants, they came here to find a better life for their children. I was proof that their struggle had been worth it. As an openly gay woman of color, I have also had my own struggles entering the world of politics, which even now can feel like a boys club. Despite the record number of women who ran and won in the 2018 U.S. midterm elections, women occupy less than 23% of the seats in Congress, even though more than half of the population is women. But when I was in the White House, I was usually too busy to think about how I had gone from being that meek schoolgirl with braids to the confident woman in a crisp tailored pantsuit who worked as Obama's regional political director in the Office of Political Affairs. I was the eyes and ears of the President of the United States in 12 northeastern states, from Maryland to Maine. The political affairs wing has three offices in a corner on the first floor of the EEOB. The Eisenhower Executive Office Building is a beautiful historic building close to the White House's West Wing. The West Wing is home to the Oval Office, where the U.S. President works. The first time I flashed my security clearance badge to the sharply dressed Marine standing guard at the double door entrance and walked into the West Wing, I remember looking around and thinking, this is so small. It looks so much bigger on TV. As a campaign operative for Senator John Edwards in 2007 and 8, I binge-watched the NBC 1999 to 2006 series starring Martin Sheen as a fictional American president named Josiah Bartlett. Still, it's hard not to be awed. I also felt a constant sense of responsibility because I was a black woman working for the first black American president. When you work at the White House, whether it's for a Democrat or a Republican, you have to put in a 12 to 15 hour workday or more. There's a reason why most people don't last a whole four year term. And under President Donald Trump, turnover among his staff has occurred at an historically high rate. It's an absolute joy, but it's also a heavy lift. I like to get there between 7 and 7.30 in the morning to prepare for our first meeting at 9 o'clock. And I rarely left before 9 p.m. I would go home to my furnished basement apartment in a semi-sketchy part of town in northeast Washington. I had taken a pay cut to work in the White House. My place was cold, dark, and dreary, but I knew I didn't need more than a place to crash. A good night's sleep was never a given. There were plenty of times that my boss emailed me at 1 or 2 in the morning expecting me to get back to him ASAP, and I did. In those days, I walked around with a BlackBerry phone, the preferred device for politicos for White House work in one hand, and in the other hand, another BlackBerry issued by the Democratic National Committee for political work. Taxpayers did not pay for President Obama to do fundraisers or other political events, so having different phones for different purposes kept us honest and out of trouble. Because I was so intent on doing things the right way, I even carried a third phone, a personal one, in my pants pocket for calls and emails with family and friends. This was not a requirement, I just wanted to be extra mindful. The stakes were too big to make a mistake. The pressure was high, but I was proud of my role and wouldn't hide it. When phone number three rang and I would tell the person on the other end I had just gotten off Air Force One of the president or I was about to make a trip with Vice President Joe Biden on Air Force Two, they would say, Kareen, listen to you. You don't even realize how cool your job is. Getting involved in politics can be intimidating. If you weren't participating in Debate Club or Young Democrats of America or Model United Nations by the time you finished high school, I know it can feel like you have no choice in politics. That's why I'm writing this book. I am proof that that's not true. I was a late bloomer. You hear stories about folks whose passions and talents were already obvious by the time they were in kindergarten. I am not like that. 
I first ran for office at Columbia University, and I wasn't drawn to a career in politics until after graduate school. Just how little did my family discuss American politics growing up? Meet Michael Dukakis. The first time I encountered politics was late on a Thursday night in July 1988. I was 13 years old. My sister Esther was six, and my brother Daniel four. My siblings and I were curled up on my parents' queen-size bed watching the television that sat in the corner of my mother's wooden vanity dresser. Moving Forward by Corinne Jean-Pierre. Welcome back, Rokana. Congressman Rokana is taking your calls for the hour in our national town hall meeting here on the Tom Hartman program. David in Columbus, Ohio, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Congressman, I'm interested in what you're doing to influence Nancy Pelosi to promote progressive policies. She's currently basically writing all the legislation, right? I mean, she's not letting anybody else get involved. I mean, she's just kind of taken over the House. So what's happening? Or is that a characterization that's uh, fair and accurate, Congressman? Well, David, I, I do think that Pelosi has a large influence, obviously, on the legislation. I think that her goal, though, she's operating in a environment where you have Donald Trump, where you have Mitch McConnell. So she's mindful that we have to get things passed through a chamber that we don't control and another branch of government that we don't control. And she's operating where a lot of the people in these swing districts are not necessarily supportive of progressive policy. So I think she herself is quite progressive. I mean, she had come out for Medicare for all a long time ago as a personal opinion, but that's different than her role as leader. And so what can we do? We need to elect more progressives across to Congress, to the Senate, ultimately have a progressive nominee. That's the way to get more progressive policy. But the Progressive Caucus is always pushing for getting more progressive policies in these bills. Mayor in Allentown, Pennsylvania. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Hi, Tom, uh, Congressman Kana. I was having one of those, you know, over the kitchen table discussions with a friend of mine, Jane. Jane and I are both mature women, and we were talking with her friend who's a millennial. She's probably 19 or so. And we, the subject of Social Security came up. And the, this young lady said, Oh well, I don't expect it to be there for me when I get when when I get there. And Jane and I we both jumped on that with both feet. He's like, Yeah, that's what they want you to think. The Republicans have been softening the ground for years and and millennials are hearing this message that it's just not gonna be there for us. How do we counteract that? Well, I appreciate that. I think we have to talk Jane, about the solvency of Social Security, and it's a simple fix. We tax people on their income when they're higher earners. And if you're right now, you're capped at 113,000. Senator Sanders, Senator Warren, myself, we have a bill that would say uh, you have to be paying Social Security tax over 250,000. And if you do that, not only could you keep Social Security solvent for the indefinite future, you could also actually expand it. And uh, I think we have to make that case over and over again so that people realize that there's a simple fix. Congressman, one of the things that I think is really important to educate young people about, and I'd love to get your take on how, what's the best way to do this, is that a 19-year-old actually has Social Security insurance. And that's a big deal. That's a policy that you can't buy on the open marketplace. One of my very best friends, Michael Hutchison, back almost 20 years ago, was out jogging. He was in his 40s at the time, out jogging, fell on an icy bridge into a river, broke his neck, and spent the next 15 years 
living independently with help, but he was paralyzed from the neck down. Social Security is what kept him alive, Social Security disability. He was not retirement age. That 19-year-old has a policy that if, he, if she gets in a car accident and ends up paralyzed, Social Security will cover her for the rest of, the, of her life. I don't think most people under 65 know that. I think you're absolutely right, Tom. We need to ed- educate people about the Social Security disability insurance and SSI, Social Security income. But we also need to increase, as you know, those amounts. I mean, uh, for people who are disabled, for people who are unable to work, those amounts are often very low and they have requirements of not having much savings. So we have to educate folks, and we have to make those, I think, much more robust programs. Yeah, I mean, for years I was essentially tithing to Michael. I, you know, the money that we were giving to charities and things, we were sending a good chunk of it to Michael to you know, help him and help him stay alive and everything. And he wrote some just, he was a writer, he wrote some just absolutely brilliant stuff once we got him a computer that he could dictate into. But once again, this is something that I think most young people don't even know is available. And, and if you were to go out and buy a policy like that on the open market, it could cost you several thousand dollars a month in your 20s, you know? Great point. How do we get the word out? Well, we need to do a better job of, of telling people the benefits to them of particular government programs. And I think this is a great point that you're saying, that it's not just wait till you're 65. It's actually a benefit now for you or your family or your friends. And it may not be something as tragic as what happened to your friend. It could be that you go out on disability for six months or a year, and it still helps you then. Right. Yeah, I could see an ad where somebody gets badly injured in a car accident or something like that, and then the announcer comes on, you know, sort of like the uh, Allstate commercials, you know, some very authoritative voice, and says, don't worry, you're covered by Social Security Disability Insurance. We're going to take care of you. Anyhow, Congressman Ro Khan is taking your calls. You got calls from all over the country on the board. My apologies for taking some You're of his time. We'll be to right the back. Tom Hartman program. Your calls for the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the guy who represents the 17th District of California, U.S. House of Representatives, Representative Ro Khan. Coming up on the Science Revolution this week, Dr. Michael Mann is here on heat, sea levels, and the Amazon. Oh, boy. Environmental scientist and writer Dana Nucitelli drops by on Michael Moore's Planet of the Humans documentary. He explains how it peddles dangerous climate denialism. And journalist David Sirota is exposing the coronavirus cover-up. In Geeky Science, I'm discussing the importance of biodiversity and how the future of the Amazon may depend on taper poop. Find the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Congressman Ro Khanna with us, the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And Kathy in Independence, Oregon, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Thank you very much. I was just wondering, I read in Australia they're giving every citizen, every citizen, 3000 a month. In Canada, they're giving every citizen 2000 a month. And in both countries, they are... Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. 
That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I already have free health care. Why am I not getting at least four grand a month since we are supposedly the greatest country and have the greatest economy on earth? And one more thing, in Saudi Arabia, each citizen is given free housing and free health care due to the oil that comes out of their ground. Why is Exxon, who we give 300 mil a quarter to, not giving me free health care and a free place to live and free schooling for my kid? Why is this country not doing that? Thank you. Well, Kathy, I, of course, agree with you in terms of the monthly checks. I mean, Tim Ryan and I proposed $2,000 a month. Uh, it's been supported by uh, Bernie Sanders uh, in the Senate and others. Uh, and uh, that's for one individual. So, of course, if you have a household, then that would be about $4,000 a month. We can afford this at a time where we've asked people not to work for safety reasons. The other point is that when you look at the OECD countries, the major Western democracies, our tax revenue that we collect is around 26% of GDP. That puts us around 35 or 40 on the OECD list. Uh, We are not one of the high-tax countries, and we can probably increase the tax we're getting from the very well-off to provide, as you point out, basic education, basic health care, basic housing to everyone. And that's a conscious choice we make that's very different from what most other countries do, and that's why we have such stark inequality in our country. Bob in Lansing, Michigan, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Uh, Tom, Representative Kana. My uh, comments are concerning what Kathy just talked about was the reason that President Trump, Mitch McConnell, and the Republicans won't give America more recovery money or to give it to the states and the American citizens is strictly their policy to force 
the people to go back to work, basically. If they got more money from the government, people would be more reluctant to go back to work. They're going to stay at home, be protected and safe, and protect their families. But if they have to feed their families, they're more likely to go back to work. Also, come fall when the schools are open, the kids would go back to school so that the parents don't have uh, child care and they can just be watched during the day while their parents are working. So, Whoop, I dumped Bob by accident. So, Bob, Bob you're, uh, I think, giving them too much credit. You know, we did pass the unemployment extension, and that did, did pass. And I know there were a few Republicans who said, well, this will disincentivize work, which is far from the truth. I, don't, I have not heard of a single person yet who says, I don't want a job and I'm going to be fine with my unemployment check. People are desperate for jobs. But the point of the city and states is that's not disincentivizing anyone. I mean, if we don't provide this money to the cities and the states, they're literally going, going to lay off people. And for the life of me, I can't understand why Trump, who wants the unemployment rate to come down, given he's running for reelection, is willing to roll the dice on that. I mean, he is so ideological, the party, that they're likely going to have higher unemployment in this country by not giving cities and states the money they need. Dave in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Thank you, Congressman. So I have to admit, the Republicans are good at one thing, framing an issue and making it appear like they're always ahead of that. And I'd like you to be more proactive. I'd like all our, our representatives to be more proactive in framing it and getting ahead of that framing. They, they, they go, oh, we're supposed to all be warriors, not just essential workers, all of us. You know, they frame it like they framed wars where we're all going to war. But, but you know what? President Bone Spurs didn't go to war because the rich kids don't go to war. It's always the poor people that go to war for them. And it's the same thing. It's reminiscent of that, that they want all the essential workers and not just essential workers. They want everyone to just go out and spend their money. That's all they care about. And you need to frame it that way and be proactive about it and say, look, all this, all Trump wants is to have everyone go back to work so their stock prices can go back up. Got it, Dave. Let's let's let the congressman respond to what you're saying. Dave, I think you're right to, to point out the, the Republican framing. I mean, their framing is we're going to stand up to get you these economies opened and it's bureaucrats and weak-willed Democrats who are not letting you go about your, your business. And they're trying to gin up their base by stoking those angers. It's very, very intentional. They've got, you know, I was trying to Mark Pocan, and he said that a lot, they've got millions of dollars pouring into these battleground states to have astroturf-like movements in, in appealing to people's anger. And I think we have to remind people that these are policies uh, that, A, are, as you put it, going to lead to more people dying, and more seniors dying, more people of all ages dying. And it's going to ultimately hurt the economy because it's going to force further shutdowns or further tightening down the line and start up the economy that's going to be uh, subject to closures. Of course, they don't care. They're just trying to get to November. Jennifer in Stillwater, Minnesota, you're on the air with King, uh, Congressman Kana. Hi, Congressman Kana. Uh, greetings from Minnesota. I just wanted to reply. One of your previous callers was talking about, you know, trying to get Medicare for all and everything, and you said we need more progressives in the House to get that through. But the problem with that is that the DCCC, you know, promised to blacklist all firms that work with candidates that are challenging incumbents. And, of course, the DCCC is headed by Nancy Pelosi, 
and that's the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which funds all the campaigns. So how can progressive challengers, you know, <laughs> effectively challenge incumbent conservatives without any money? Well, Jennifer, I, as you know, opposed that policy very strongly. I led one of the efforts to say that you can't blacklist consultants if they're running against your challenger, uh, I mean, running against incumbent. But I think one of the things progressives can do is take heart at the fact that now you can raise a lot of resources online through grassroots organizing, campaigning online, through social media, and having strong digital presence. And ultimately, Medicare for All is a popular policy. I just fundamentally believe that the elected officials in D.C. are a lagging indicator, that the party is ordinary people are far more progressive. And COVID-19 is going to make this apparently clear. So we just need to continue to fight to push people in a progressive direction so it's more consistent with what voters actually want. Congressman, we have uh, 45 seconds to the break. Are you seeing strong indications that this is going to be a good election for us, or are you freaked out? Well, Tom, I'd like your thoughts on that, but my sense is it's better to be paranoid. You know, in Silicon Valley, Andy Grove had a saying saying only the paranoid survive, and so much is at stake that I think it's better for us <laughs> to have a sense of paranoia. And my concern is that it's a turnout election. And if that's the case, his base is going to be ginned up and come out. And I'm still a little bit concerned about whether our base is going to come out. What do you think? I'm a lot concerned about that. The thing that that gets me the most is all these states that are making it very, very difficult to do mail-in voting. And you look at the polls that show that a majority, 60, 70 percent of Republicans are more than happy to go out to vote and in fact want to go out to restaurants, and a minority of Democrats are willing to. And that has to do with the news sources that they're looking at. So that, that's what worries me. Congressman Rokana is with us for the hour, taking your calls in our national town hall meeting. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And the Tom Hartman Book Club today, we're reading from United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation in Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It, by Nolan Higdon and Mickey Huff. And this is from the foreword by Ralph Nader. Ever since the few began to control the many, disinformation, fabrications, and distractions have been used to shape consent, impose submission, and maintain domination. Whether by the invoked authority of God, the divine right of kings, the dictatorial embodiment of a fatherland, the dictatorship of the proletariat, or the tyranny of commercially managed marketplaces, the casualty of such control has always been the ability of ordinary people to give voice to their own realities, needs, demands, and grievances. Given the inherent pragmatism of the human mind, the oppressed have often found it safer to believe rather than to think to obey rather than dissent. Today, such a path is reinforced by a plutocratic political economy that allows corporations to dominate mass media, education, and the production of knowledge and memory. Human history, however, has not been without its visionaries, seers, and prescient intellectuals, poets, artists, thinkers, and philosopher rebels. Every major religion admonishes its, its adherents not to allow the merchant class, with its singular focus on aggregating profits at the expense of truth, compassion, and self-restraint, to amass too much power. 
such instructions have emanated not from revelation, but from ethics learned by the daily experience of living in community with others committed to the common good. Unfortunately, it has not been the transactional incentives of commerce, but the cooperative bonds of community that dominate the most significant acts of life in the United States today. The dystopian scenarios portrayed in George Orwell's 1984 and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World look like understatements compared to today's plutocratic deployment of communications technologies, many of them developed by taxpayer-funded government programs and grants. The ultimate success of top-down censorship is self-censorship by the people. The same holds true for mass surveillance. From radio and television to the internet and smartphones and all the video platforms and apps in between, commercially controlled media have used seduction and addiction to lure users to increasingly stare into screens and share personal data and location, thus becoming complicit with authoritarianism and mass surveillance. In the process, the population has become fact-deprived and over-entertained with lowered expectation levels and reduced attention spans. These technology-driven changes have distracted people from their rights and powers as citizens. As authors Nolan Higdon and Mickey Huff write, long before Trump's candidacy, ratings drove programming and news. In the process, celebrity, entertainment, scandal, crime, disaster, and spectacle clearly dominated over substantive reporting and public interest advocacy capable of questioning and countering abuses of corporate power and government authority. Trump, they noted, came right out of the omnipresent corporate commercialism. Deadly degradation of media is everywhere. Fueled by Madison Avenue's promotional perfidy, the junk food industry, bypassing parental authority, has lied its way directly into the stomachs of tens of millions of children, creating an obesity epidemic with its attendant diseases. Alternative facts, anyone? 45 years ago, venerated CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite called the three minutes or so devoted to a serious news story merely a headline service. If anything, the situation has worsened since Cronkite's time. Gone are the fairness doctrine, the right of reply, and any pretense that the Federal Communications Commission is regulating the broadcasters according to the 1934 Communication Act standard of the public interest, convenience, and necessity. The takeover of hundreds of newspapers, local television stations, and radio stations by corporate profiteers is still worsening. These corporations loot vulnerable media operations by cutting out reporters, investigative journalists, whistleblowers, educational content, and local coverage. Magazines are shrinking, going out of business, or just migrating to online-only versions. Social media cannot generate such content in addition to other shortcomings. Young people today are becoming increasingly illiterate. They spend more time staring at screens, but ultimately read less long-form content and less forced to do so for classwork. Fewer people are showing up for town meetings, marches, demonstrations, and rallies in spite of the ease and immediacy of communication enabled by the Internet. The so-called information age has become the disinformation age, with the corporate media's exclusion of the civic community being one of its most devastating triumphs. In the 1960s and 1970s, we could not have succeeded in advancing standards for public health and safety, labor, and environmental integrity without the help of mass media reporting on public campaigns and congressional hearings or without large audiences tuning into 
programs such as the Phil Donahue Show, which dedicated airtime to discussing our investigations, reports, and exposés. Now it is not just corporate media, but the Congress itself that is increasingly shutting out citizens' groups. The United States of Distraction by Higdon and Huff. Jeff in Portland, Oregon, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Hey, good morning, Tom and Congressman Khanna. Thank you guys for the ongoing town hall and hope all is well. Congressman, first off, I want to thank you for your efforts to strengthen the uh, HEROES Act you guys passed on Friday. You know, it does have some good stuff, but of course falls short in, in ways that you, Tom, and previous callers have outlined. So please keep fighting. And for whatever the reasons for Speaker Pelosi not to incorporate more of the progressive priorities into the bill, I think Joe Biden needs to eschew this cautious status quo oriented approach and go much bigger and bolder in matching his platform and personnel to the catastrophic scale of the crisis. It's been suggested he take you on as his campaign manager or one of his campaign managers, and that would be great. But as far as the VP pick, to me, no one has better progressive bona fides on the national stage than Elizabeth Warren. She's cranking out plans on a daily basis. Am I wrong to think she should be the no-brainer choice for Joe's running mate? Jeff, I don't know if this is a softball or a setup, but it's a it's a great question because I have an op-ed, <laughs> coincidentally, in the Boston Globe today that's saying Biden can channel FDR by choosing Elizabeth Warren as vice president. And as people know, I was Sanders' co-chair. I'm very proud of that. And, uh, of course, I think uh, the world of Bernie Sanders. But uh, Biden has made it very clear that he wants to pick a woman, and I think it's by far Elizabeth Warren is the choice to have a progressive moment. And I think that's the biggest thing Biden can do. I mean, he could have people like me involved in his campaign, and I'd do whatever he wants because he's the nominee. But ultimately, I think having someone like Warren there would send a huge signal about the type of presidency he would have. Michael in Seattle. I got a quick one here, Michael. We got a minute, a little more than a minute to the break. Congressman, I'm asking you and your uh, progressive party members to do something very proactive with the youngest of voters under 25 and get out there with their spokespeople and let them do some talking because us telling them that they must vote is not going to do it. Thanks. You guys are great. Love you both. Michael, I agree with you completely. We need to have creative people from that generation in their own voice doing things, memes, and other uh, types of content online. And it's not about getting someone who understands the metrics or get, getting someone who understands where to get ads. It's about making sure that the content, the message, is resonating in a way that appeals to young folks and that there's an agenda that appeals to them. I think that has to be led by them, and it has to have the policy to match what their concerns are. One of the real sleeping giants in that area is the Sunrise Movement, uh, young people who are concerned about climate activism. Do you know if the Biden campaign has reached out to them? They have. I know Varshney, who I think very highly of, is on one of these task forces, I think, with AOC on climate change. And, you know, people underestimate Sunrise and these movements and how critical they were to Bernie Sanders. I mean, that's how Bernie won some of those early states with that activism. And we're going to need them uh, having that energy uh, to match uh, Trump's turnout. Yeah, I'm with you. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Hey, we have a special new video up over at TomHartman.com, and it's about how FDR in 1944, in fact, January of 44, in his uh, State of the Union address, talked about how important it was to add rights to the Bill of Rights. The original Bill of Rights was all political rights. He said it's time to enshrine economic rights in our Constitution. I would add, like most of the governments of Europe have done, and this includes the right to housing, the right to food, the right to to a good job that pays well, the right to an education, including a college education, and the right to health care. It's pretty powerful stuff. And frankly, I think that what this coronavirus crisis is proving is that we are all in this together and that Reagan's thing about government is never going to help you was just a, a load of crap. And so you can check it out over at TomHartman.com. Congressman O'Connor taking your calls for the hour in our national town hall meeting. And Bradley in Northport, Michigan, you're on the earth, Congressman Connor. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for taking my call, Representative, and uh, thank you for your work and continue that, please. Uh, 
I have a couple questions, but uh, one first is uh, when the money was handed out to the small businesses in particular, was there consideration given for the smallest of the small businesses, like with one or two people, that they were able to get secured funds first before the people with 500 or 600 were able to get at it and take all the money off? They had lawyers' access on how to do things. Most struggling businesses, uh, when they say small business, I think 25 people and less, but they say up to 500. I just wondered if there was any timing element where the smaller people got first crack. You know, that's an excellent point, and there wasn't. And this was one of the failures of the PPP program. I mean, a lot of the PPP businesses that got funded were 100, 200-person businesses. They got millions of dollars of loans. It probably would have been better if you had had a priority to businesses that were under 10 people and you could then give them a $100,000 or $200,000 loan, which would have gone a long way. And that would have helped the dry cleaner, the local restaurant, the local hair salon, as opposed to mid-sized companies. We learned some of those lessons in the second round of funding, and the second round of funding was better distributed. But you're right that the funding should have been better allocated to the smaller businesses. Kino in Lakeland, Florida. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Yes, this is Kino, the moose herder Republican who wants reform in the Republican Party. Now, a week or two ago, Joe Biden, it was announced he's going to try to form a Republicans for Biden. But I have a visual problem seeing computer screens, so I do not have a computer. How can I get in touch with the Biden campaign to join the Republicans for uh, Biden? Well, Kino, I appreciate that very much, and I do believe that there are going to be a lot of Republicans who are just tired of the corruption and tired of the lack of scientific expertise in this administration and are going to vote for a change. I would recommend that you know you sign up if you can, or you get someone's help to sign up on on a website for the vice president, or you know you can look up his number and, and call their campaign, and they will tell you how to to get involved. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Congressman Kana, as the uh, chair of the Progressive Caucus, I hope my question isn't as futile for you as it seems to me. I'm actually leaving the United States permanently for Europe soon, but is it time to start looking at some legislative law through the House and the Senate that clarifies and fortifies in language what the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment is supposed to do to dial back some of the theocracy and the mayhem in our government. Just look at the Supreme Court last week, all those cases involving employers trying to impose their cult on uh, their staff. Eric, uh, I, I appreciate it. I mean, as, as, as you point out, in our country, there is a clear establishment clause that says that the government can impose religion on our citizenry. And there's also a sense where private organizations or private employers need to recognize the equality of citizenship so your own religious beliefs can't allow you to discriminate. And I think both of those are very important to, to enforce for equal citizenship. Joe in Cupertino, California. Quick question for Congressman Kana. Yeah, it's Congressman. I'm just amazed. Here we are now at um, two months, and there's 85,000 deaths in America. I'm hoping that you can do something to save me and mine from the debauchery called the presidency here. But I wondered if you'd be interested in taking a spot on the Senate. You're the chair, vice chair of the Progressive Congress. 
And we have quite a few House of Representatives, but very few senators. And we need to replace one, if not two, in California in the very near future. You're a top-gun guy. I'm just hopeless there's something I can do to convince you to reconsider your position and consider the Senate. Joe, I'm flattered, but I really love serving in the House for two reasons, and I'm I'm not being coy about it. One, I represent Silicon Valley, which uh, post-COVID we're going to see is even more important in terms of equality of access to a digital economy, and I can't think of a more important constituency. And two, in the House, you have a lot of freedom to be bold, to be even challenge your own leadership, to be creative, and I, I love that part of the job. Congressman, thanks so much for dropping by, and thanks for the great work you do with the Congressional Progressive Caucus. It is spectacular. Oh, the Thank hour's you. already flown by. I didn't even realize it. Thank you, Tom. I, I yeah. appreciate it. It's <laughs> always fun. Thank you, Congressman. We look forward to the next time you can drop by. It's great having you with us. For the Tom Harmon University Book Club today, we're reading from a book written by my old friend, Dennis Weaver. He has passed away. I wrote the foreword for this book, just FYI. It's called All the World's a Stage, and it's Dennis's autobiography. Dennis Weaver, Chester and Gunsmoke, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's talking about early in the Depression. This is from page uh, 17, just kind of telling his early life. Early in the Depression, it became clear. He's talking about the 1930s, when he was a young boy. Early in the Depression, it became clear that people had to come together and support each other, or many would just not survive. Not being cooperative and neighborly was not an option. If our neighbors were in trouble, we would not think twice about helping them. We just did it. I remember a family named Hardy bought the 10 acres next to our farm. There was nothing on that land except woods. The men in the surrounding area got together on weekends to cut down the trees and made logs to build a house, a real log raising. Within six or seven weekends, they built a log home for the Hardy family to live in and a shed for their cows. Children had lots of fun. We played games and jumped from stump to stump like leaping frogs while the men sawed logs and hammered nails. Ladies brought covered dishes of food like potato salad, baked beans, and jello, and we had a picnic at lunchtime. It was a community thing, a gathering of friends, and to this day, I still carry the feeling with me. In those times and moments, despite the Depression, we thought we had the best of life, and in a way, we really did. Life was simpler. We knew how good it felt to be neighborly, to share our lives with each other. The national economy was shredded due to the crash of 1929, but in our area, including parts of Missouri, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Texas, the problem was exacerbated by what was known as the Great Dust Bowl. Continuing droughts had dried up the earth, and the fierce winds picked up the defenseless soil and made huge clouds of thick, swirling dust. Visibility often shrunk to a few yards. Most skilled and determined farmers were humbled before its wrath. The nutritious topsoil was all blown away and agriculture came to a screeching halt. At the time, I didn't understand it, but it's crystal clear to me now that our economy and our environment are interdependent. When the environment at that time was destroyed and the farmers could no longer farm, they weren't the only ones who suffered. The economic disaster for the farmers spread like a raging virus to carpenters, plumbers, shop owners, and even bankers. Okies by the thousand piled whatever possessions they could salvage into cars, trucks, any jalopy that would run and headed for California, which Dust Bowl victims considered to be the land of milk and honey. Perhaps the only one who profited from the Dust Bowl was John Steinbeck when he wrote The Grapes of Wrath. Because of the Dust Bowl, our farm was not financially successful. It certainly helped to feed the family, but the extra income my folks had hoped it would generate did not materialize. Mom, always trying to find a way out, heard from neighbors who had fled the Dust Bowl in our devastated economy earlier that the strawberry picking was good in Oregon. 
There was money to be made just for the picking. So we gave up on the farm and moved back to my birthplace in Joplin, 619 Brownell, to get ready for the trek west. Furthest west I'd ever been was Blackwell, Oklahoma. Would I see a real live cowboy? I wondered. What would Oregon be like? I might even see the Pacific Ocean. Our budget for the trip was minimal at best. Like the pioneers across the Great Plains 100 years earlier, we were obliged to carry our own supplies because motels and restaurants were out of the question. Unlike those earlier settlers, the horses that carried us were not hitched to a wagon, but were under the hood of a 1928 DeSoto. Our plan was simple. Mom, Howard, and Mary Ann, two years old by this time, Jerry, Denzel, Bell, and I would go to Oregon and pick strawberries and do what other jobs we could get. We would save our earnings and come back to Joplin in time for Howard and me to go back to school. Dad would stay behind, keep his job at the Empire District, and serve as a safety net for us. In case we broke down or got stranded, he could bail us out. Denzel was a carpenter by trade. He put his skills to good use. He built a cupboard on the back of old Betsy, our DeSoto, where we could store an ample supply of canned goods and food staples. By releasing a fastener, the backside of the cupboard opened up and a leg swung down to support it, and lo and behold, we had a table on which to prepare the food and off of which we could eat. We jammed the storeroom with supplies, gave old Betsy a final mechanical check, set our farewells, and headed west for the wild blue yonder. Although she never hinted at it, I'm sure Mom must have had a few qualms and trepidations. For me, it was just the beginning of what I imagined to be a great adventure. We started out for Oregon in the late spring of 1934. In those days, there were no four-lane interstates, just two-lane roads that were often in need of repair and full of detours. Our top speed was 40 miles an hour, so driving to Oregon was no walk in the park. Not long after crossing into Colorado from Kansas, we could see on the horizon what looked like a triangular cloud. It was strange because, like the other clouds, moved, this one didn't budge. We used it as a guiding star for more than two hours before we realized it wasn't a cloud at all. It was the snow-capped top of Pike's Peak. As we drove deeper and deeper into the Rocky Mountains, I was moved more and more by their sheer beauty and breathtaking grandeur. It was awesome. I loved the majestic granite mountains, the tall pines, the quaking aspens, crisp, dry air. It was all very magical to me. I guess I'm back in Colorado today because I was so impressed with it as a child. I was not only impressed by the beauty, but by what it had to offer. This was the first time I'd ever seen a real live working cowboy. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a real deer. We were driving over Wolf Creek Pass at dusk, coming around a bend, and there, right in front of us, was this wild deer running down the road in and out of the shadows. Book All the World's a Stage, Dennis Weaver's autobiography, the foreword by Tom Hartman. So the question, you know, how do we handle Donald Trump? I think, you know, number one, it's going to have to be a blowout in November, which means make sure that everybody you know is registered to vote and not just registered. If you or your friends or your neighbors or the people that you know on Facebook or whatever it may be, anybody you know, if they are registered to vote, make sure that they're also signed up for absentee ballots, which is what they're called in most states. Trump is now saying, this This is bizarre, Alex Henderson writing on Alternet, Trump's animosity for Democratic governors grows as White House official insists, if you're good and respectful to him, he'll treat you the same. Trump wants to trash Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York. 
And the only thing that's restraining him is the fact that Andrew Cuomo is on TV every morning and he's been saying nice things about Trump. And, and plus, more Americans are watching Cuomo on TV than are watching Trump. So it's, it's kind of in a bind. But this is a sad state of affairs. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.